Jeremiah 36, on page 798. Jehoiakim burns Jeremiah's scroll. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I cannot go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on the day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord, the words of the Lord, that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord, and each will turn away from his wicked ways, for the anger and wrath produced against this people by the Lord are great. Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple he read the words of the Lord from the scroll, in the ninth month of the fifth year of Jerichoim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah. From the room of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance to the new gate of the temple, Baruch read all the people that the Lord read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard the words of the Lord of the, from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace, where the officials were sitting. Elishma, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Sheremiah, Alnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Haniah, and all the other officials. After Micaiah told them everything he had heard, Baruch read, them, read to the people from the scroll. All the officials sent Jadu, son of Nathaniah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Kishi, to say to Baruch, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, went to them with the scroll in his hand. They said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, We must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, Tell us, how did you come to write all this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. The officials said to Baruch, You and Jeremiah go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. After they put the, the scroll in the, the room of Elishma, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and Jehudai brought it from the room of Elishma, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the brazier in front of him. 
Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the brazier until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Arnathan, Deliah and Jeremiah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiel, a son of the king, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shalishima, the son of Abdil, to arrest Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were from the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. And also tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them, because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. This is the word of the Lord. Before we start, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us a word that is wonderful, that is inspired, and that is God-breathed. A word that gives us a word of salvation. We ask, Lord, that you'll meet with us now as we look at your word, and that by your Holy Spirit we will be encouraged and blessed through that word. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. George Burns, the American actor and comedian, once said this about sermons. The secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and to have the two as close together as possible. <laughs> Maybe I should just end right now. Um, we may not entirely agree with Burns, but he certainly has a point, doesn't he? Sermons aren't always helpful. And one of the reasons is that we preachers, all of us that stand here, sometimes struggle to answer a fundamental question, namely, what does this passage have to do with me? And so we compensate. We compensate and we assail you with all manner of clever PowerPoints, complicated stories, lengthy histories. Whereas what we should be doing is making sure that we are first spiritually fed by the passage, and then that you are spiritually fed by the passage. And we can do that by answering the question, what does this passage have to do with me? Now fortunately with today's passage, I actually think the answer to that question is fairly clear. But to get there, we will have to briefly first get our heads around what's going on with the history. So I'm going to approach this quite simply and directly and ask two questions. Firstly, what happened? And secondly, so what? So firstly, what happened? So, 
Jeremiah was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah around 600 years before Christ, so it's about 2,600 years ago. And he was called to that role in 626 BC. And he spent most of his time just north of Jerusalem, which was the capital of the kingdom of Judah at the time. His right-hand man was a man called Baruch. And Jeremiah's message that God had given him to give the people was very simple. It was a message of judgment and a message of hope. Because the kingdom of Judah, sadly, it had a litany and a series of incompetent and evil kings who'd led the people away from God into idolatry and into all kinds of evil behavior over generations. So the message from Jeremiah, from God through Jeremiah, was God is going to judge you, and he's going to judge you by bringing an enemy from the north who will destroy you if you don't repent and turn back to him. But at the same time, the message is also one of hope. Because God will keep the promise that he'd made hundreds of years before to Abraham. He will still rescue his people. He will still establish an eternal kingdom. It's a message of judgment and it's a message of hope. Now not all the kings were bad. So the most noteworthy exception was Josiah. Now Josiah implemented massive reforms around 640 BC. He turned back to God. He destroyed idols. He stopped idolatry across the nation. And he had a secretary of state, a man by the name of Shaphan, a good man. And Shaphan discovered what was probably the sole remaining copy of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible you're holding. And he discovered them in a dusty corner of the neglected temple. And when Shaphan read that law to Josiah, the seriousness of their situation terrified Josiah. So in 2 Kings 22, we read this, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes and he gave these orders. Go and, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book because great is the Lord's anger that burns against us. So his response was completely appropriate, right? He believed what he had heard. He was desperately afraid for himself and for the nation and the first thing he did was to find out what God wanted of him. Now sadly, in 608 BC, Josiah was killed in battle against the Egyptians. And he had a, he had a wonderful epitaph, kind of epitaph we should all long for. So 2 Kings 23. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah. And that was because the people complied, but they didn't repent. They didn't actually turn back to God. So Josiah and his secretary of state were both very godly men. There's no epitaph to Shaphan as such, like there is with Josiah, but it's very clear that he had a massive influence for years afterwards. His three sons, on different occasions throughout the letter, appear 
And they, on various occasions, helped Jeremiah, they rescued Jeremiah, they worked with Jeremiah. And we see two of them, the son and the grandson, in the passage today. But while Josiah was a godly king, we cannot say the same about his son, who we meet today, Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim was put on the throne by the Egyptians, who had killed Josiah. And it's three years later, 605 BC, and we're now in the same period as chapter 36. And the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar, appear on the scene, and they start to emerge. They go and they defeat the Egyptians. They turn around, they come down to Judah, they defeat Judah, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And they're around the city. And they take the first, and the pattern of the Babylonians was that they would take the cream of the crop into exile back to Babylon, and those people would be retrained, retaught, and would live there and contribute to that society. And that's what they do. So they take the first wave out. And another fascinating thread starts in God's plan, because that first wave, at the same time period as this chapter we're reading, includes Daniel and his friends. And they go to Babylon. And now they are being used by God to influence Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And this is the beginning of God's judgment on Judah. So Jehoiakim finds he's no longer a puppet king under the Egyptians. He's now a puppet king under the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 1 in chapter 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Judgment, but also hope. So Jeremiah calls Baruch, his friend, his colleague, his right-hand man, his secretary. And he dictates everything from God for Baruch to write down, which Baruch does over something like a nine-month period. And much of that material you have in Jeremiah, but there was a lot more. And Jeremiah can't go to the temple, probably because he's now persona non grata with all of these authorities. He says to Baruch, you need to go, and Baruch goes. Verse 5, I'm restricted, I cannot go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read to them all, read to all the people of Judah who come in from their town. So there's a fast in Jerusalem, probably called because they wanted to appeal to any and all gods that they could to protect them from the Babylonians. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and each will turn from his wicked ways from the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. Judgment and hope. But this is a final written warning from God. So Baruch goes to the temple, scroll in hand. He's helped by Micaiah, Shaphan's grandson, the same Shaphan who was the secretary of state for Josiah. Micaiah's father, Gemariah is now the Secretary of State. 
And Micaiah lets Baruch take the scroll. He lets him stand on the balcony which faces one of the gates to the temple, and he lets Baruch read it out loud to the people as they are coming in for the fast. God's offering them a last chance, and he wants them all to hear it. Verse 10. From the room of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace, where all the officials were sitting. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, son of Akbor, Gemariah, son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. So Micaiah listens to every word, the whole thing being read. And as soon as he's finished, as soon as he's finished hearing, he rushes to tell his father, Gemariah, who is with the other officials, probably having a crisis cabinet meeting. And they put the business aside, and they immediately call Baruch, and they patiently listen to the entire thing read again. Verse 16. And their reaction is appropriate. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, how did you come to write this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. So they confirm the message is authentic. Did Jeremiah write this, dictate this? They believe what they've heard. They're afraid. They know it must go to King Jehoiakim. But they also know his character. So they first send Baruch and Jeremiah to hide, and they put the scroll somewhere safe. And the news goes to King Jehoiakim, and King Jehoiakim calls for the scroll to be read. And his reaction is anything but appropriate. As each section is read, he slices it off, and he throws it into the fire pot at his feet. The cabinet members standing there, Gemariah and the others, urge him, don't do it, but he ignores them. His attendants and the other hangers-on and the other yes-men show no fear. They just stand there. It's incredible. The Babylonian army, God's hand of judgment, is at the door. Jehoiakim gets a written warning from God of what's going to happen. And what does he do? He contemptuously rejects God's word. And we know from verse 29 exactly what he was told. So this is God speaking at the end. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? So he specifically told that the Babylonian army knocking at the door would destroy him and his people, but he rejects the warning. He sends one of his adopted sons to find Jeremiah and Baruch with the intention to kill them as he had done with other prophets. But they're well hidden by God. And the tension now rides on the question, is God's message lost? No, it's not. God taps Jeremiah on the shoulder, verse 28. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. Also tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. 
he will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. That's what happened. So in 605 BC, God sends a final written warning to the evil king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim destroys the scroll, but God preserves the message and condemns Jehoiakim in the process. Seven years later, Jehoiakim is killed and his body is dumped somewhere outside the city. And as was prophesied, his son is king for only three months, and that's the end of his legacy. In 587 BC, God's judgment is fully carried out. Nebuchadnezzar's army arrives, they remove any remaining talent from Jerusalem, they utterly destroy the temple and anything that's left of the city, and they just leave a few people to live. But through all of this, Jeremiah is assured by God that this is not the end. There is hope because God will keep his promise. So that's what happened. Question two, so what? What do all these events of 2,600 years ago have to do with us? And there's a number of things. But there are two major truths that are highlighted. Firstly, God keeps his promises. And secondly, God preserves his word. God keeps his promises and God preserves his word. And those two truths carry this message of judgment and hope. So here's a word picture that I found helpful. Think of Jeremiah's message of judgment and hope as a train thundering toward Judah. And think of God keeping his promises and God preserving his word as the track, as the rails that that message is running on. So God's word and God's promises are the truths that carry God's message, one of judgment and one of hope. Without those rails, the train goes nowhere. So firstly, God keeps his promises. Now, it's very clear from the Bible that, that history isn't just a random collection of unrelated events, right? It's orchestrated, and God is the conductor. It is unfolding according to a particular plan. It is unfolding to achieve a particular end. So to give you one example of probably hundreds, Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Now the question that often raises is, why am I then held responsible for my actions? And does that mean that God causes evil? Now, we're not looking at the whole topic of the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man today, but I'll just say this. Yes, we are responsible for our actions and decisions. We are not puppets. But at the same time, we're not autonomous. God is sovereign and in control. He doesn't commit or approve evil acts, but he does allow them to happen. He is in control. And the Bible holds both of those truths up next to each other. God is sovereign, man has responsibility. 
What does that mean for us? What that means is that if God makes a promise, if God makes a commitment, if God says that this and this will happen, then you can stake your life, all you have and all you are, on the fact that it will happen. You may not like it. It may insult your sense of autonomy, but it's going to happen anyway. And that's what we see in Jehoiakim. He expresses his sense of autonomy as he proudly rejects God's call for repentance to experience mercy, and he actually tries to destroy God's word, as if that would stop the prophecy from actually happening anyway. So he, his attendants, his family, and his kingdom all reject God. And so finally God's long-suffering patience, held over generations, comes to an end. The judgment falls, and they play the ultimate price. Can you imagine the pressure Jeremiah was under to say what they wanted to hear? To comply with the social pressures of the day and to go easy on the hard truths. Please turn to chapter 33 on page 796. Just a page back. Chapter 33. Now fortunately, under that pressure, God is a good father. And so every now and then when Jeremiah feels like he's going to buckle, delivering this deadly message and being mocked for it, delivering this deadly message and being sneered at, delivering this deadly message and being threatened with death, just then God gently gives him some relief and he gives him perspective. And he pulls him aside and he lets Jeremiah see down the corridor of time to the distant misty future and he shows him what will come. Verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. It's a wonderful prophecy. Yes, Jeremiah, if they don't repent, I will judge them. But it won't end there. I'll keep my promise. A righteous branch will come from David's line. He will do what is just and right. He will be the ultimate righteous king, and he will fulfill my gracious promise. There's judgment, but there's also hope. And it's the same for us. So sometimes God needs to take us and help us get some perspective. And we're fortunate because we can look back down the corridors of time and we can see the fulfillment start when Christ, the righteous branch from David's line, the Lord, our righteousness, came to earth and paid the ultimate price for our sin. And we can look forward down the corridors of time in Scripture to see the promise that God made to Jeremiah will be completely fulfilled when Christ returns to provide a new heaven and a new earth. But he then will return as king and as judge. We really can't sugarcoat this. The judgment that fell on Judah, the destruction of the temple of the city and of the people, is a picture for us. It's a picture of the judgment that will fall on us if we don't do what Judah did, if we don't repent and turn in faith to the living God. So we can laugh at these warnings, and we can laugh at the idea of wrath and hell because it's antiquated and it's non-PC. We can use the warnings as kindling to warm our feet, just like Jehoiakim did. 
Or we can respond in fear, and we can ask God what He wants from us, just like His father, Josiah, did. So that's the first reason the passage is important. It shows us that God keeps His promises, His promise of judgment, and His promise of hope. The second reason is that God preserves His Word. Now, if you think about it, this is an impossibility. Logically, this book should not exist. So here's a thought experiment for you. Let's imagine that the Church of England embarks on Project Bible 2.0 and decides we must create a new Bible. But we'll use the same technology and the same approach as was used previously. So there will be five things that will happen. Number one, we'll choose a group of 40 authors across multiple cultures in three continents over almost 2,000 years. Those 40 authors, some will be highly educated, doctors, statesmen, kings and the like. Some will be completely uneducated, fishermen, shepherds and the like. Second thing, these authors will write 66 books of varying and multiple genres. History, poetry, narrative, letters and so on. And they'll write them in three different languages. Third thing, the content of all these 66 books across these 2,000 years must align. The books must all agree. The core story and the message of the books will be the same. All 66 books will cohere with the same view of God, the same view of man, the same view of the world, the same view of people, the same view of everything, in line with one overarching story. Number four, no computers. No word processes, no backups. They can have parchment ink and quills. Their friends can make copies if they need them, by hand. And here's the best bit. We won't tell them. We won't tell them what they're contributing to. We won't tell them that it must all cohere with the same core message. The message will just gradually unfold, mysteriously, of its own accord, across the books as they emerge. We don't have to worry. They don't have to know. It'll be fine. Pigs would sooner fly. There is no way that could any happen, that could happen by any organization, never mind the Church of England. It is utterly impossible. A single brilliant author could not do this, let alone 40 of them across 2,000 years using three different languages. The problem is, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. There has to be one mind guiding all these authors behind the scenes and ensuring that the core message is retained, that one single story unfolds, that one message is preserved without overruling the creativity, the honesty, and the integrity of the authors themselves. There is only one mind that can do that. And we haven't even mentioned what Gary Habermas described so, so well a few weeks ago for us. The fact that no other historical document comes within light years of the reliability and integrity of the biblical texts. How do you explain this apart from the hand of God preserving his word? But let's think about more recent acts of preservation. So I, I shouldn't be, and you probably shouldn't be, but I can't help but be surprised at the comments we see people make about the Reformation. And it's comments made in a rush to recast history into a politically correct Facebook-approved mold. 
Yes, bad things happened during the Protestant Reformation by stupid people, but most of it was to the Reformers, not by the Reformers. The Reformation was a merciful work of God the Holy Spirit to unshackle this word and through that word to bring saving faith to thousands and subsequently to millions across the world and also to produce massive social benefits as a result. A few small examples. Economies benefited enormously. They didn't call it the Protestant work ethic for nothing. Education improved beyond measure. Think of the effect of the King James Bible in this land. For slaves, abolition thanks to Protestants. For the Germans, a single unified language because of one thing and one thing only, the Lutheran Bible. For the Americans, no Reformation, no Mayflower. Who knows what, have, what would have happened to that country and to their Bill of Rights. And that's just scratching the surface. England. No Reformation, no English Bible. Before the Reformation, you had to be a member of a religious elite to have access to any Bible, and then it would only be available in Latin or in the original languages. So William Tyndale published the first English translation of the New Testament, for which he would pay with his life. The Roman Catholic Church was determined to stop him. So Archbishop Woolsey was burning as many copies of the English New Testament as he could get his hands on at St. Paul's Cross in London. He started running out of stock. And so he sent the Bishop of London, a fellow by the name of Cuthbert Tonstall, off to find as many copies of the English New Testament as he could. Now Tonstall got in touch with a merchant by the name of Packington. And Packington assured Bishop Tonstall, I will, get your, I, will get, I will be able to get your hands on all the remaining copies of Tyndale's English translation to be burnt. And they agreed a price, and the bishop was delighted. What the bishop didn't know is that Packington was a Tyndale supporter. So Packington went to Tyndale in Antwerp. And Tyndale at this point was in debt, and he was struggling to finance himself, and the new edition of the English New Testament that he was working on. I come bearing good news, Mr. Tyndale. I have a buyer for all of your existing stock, Mr. Packington says. Who would that be, asked Tyndale? The Bishop of London, Packington replies. Ah, says Tyndale, he wishes to burn them. Packington quietly waited for the penny to drop. And Tyndale eventually got it. And so the bishop got his old New Testaments. Packington got the gratitude and thanks of the bishop and of Tyndale. And Tyndale got the money to produce the new New Testament. Now, not long afterwards, the bishop contacted Packington to complain about the fact that if you burnt all the New Testaments available, why are there so many more flooding into England? How cometh this that there are so many New Testaments abroad? You promised me that you would buy them all. Then answered Packington, Surely I bought all that there were to be had, but I perceive they have printed more since. I see it will never be better so long as they have letters and presses. Wherefore you had best buy the presses too, and then only will you be sure. And the conversation ended. That's how God orchestrates events. He directs Josiah and Shaphan to the last remaining copy of the Torah in a dusty corner of a temple where it could so easily have been lost. 
He directs Jeremiah to rewrite everything because a fool of a king burnt the first copy. He works behind the scenes to thwart the attempts of the Roman Catholic Church to destroy the English Bible. And that's just a few of the thousands of interventions by God to ensure that you can have that Bible on your lap in your language. But the attacks do carry on. As you probably know, we saw a disturbing lack of leadership from Archbishop Welby recently. When he tacitly approved and supported the Scottish Episcopal Church's decision to approve gay marriage, which was also a decision to reject the words of Christ regarding marriage. And Welby then criticised the global Anglican Communion for appointing Andy Lyons as an Anglican bishop outside of the Church of England to provide leadership to those faithful churches in Scotland. Churches who now rightly believe that they must leave the Scottish Episcopal Church. Andy was consecrated on Friday, which is a really good thing. Jeremiah 36 shows us that we must stand against anyone who Jehoiakim-like wants to slice pieces out of God's word just to comply with the cultural demands of the day. And it shows us that we must stand with anyone who Josiah-like wants to treat God's word with fear and with honor to ensure the godly proclamation of the gospel. But most of all, we must rejoice at the fact that God has it all under control. Isaiah chapter 40, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. But the most important fact about the Bible isn't that it was produced in a near-miraculous way, nor is it that it was preserved in a near-miraculous way. The most important fact about the Bible is the fact that it is the living, breathed-out Word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. These aren't just men's ideas on paper. These are words conveyed through the authors by God the Holy Spirit and apply to you, the hearer, by God the Holy Spirit. That's why it does what it does. That's why it cuts to the bone and that's why it uncovers what's hidden in the depths of your heart. That's why it breaks through your barriers, and that's why it makes you squirm. That's why God uses it to transform your heart and your life. That's why it gives you joy. That's why, as Paul wrote to Timothy, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Years ago in a theater in Moscow, Alexander Rostozev was playing the role of Jesus in a mocking play called Christ in a Tuxedo. He was supposed to read from the Sermon on the Mount, remove his gown and cry out, give me my tuxedo and top hat. But as he read these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He started to tremble on stage. He quietly carried on reading, ignoring the coughs, the whispers, and the foot stamping of his fellow actors. And then he remembered a verse from Luke chapter 23, <clears throat> a verse he'd learnt in his childhood. 
And he quietly cried out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And before the curtain hurriedly hit the floor, Alexander had become a Christian. It's a supernatural, God-inspired word. God preserves his word because through it he gives new life. Through it he transforms, he renews. How can we possibly slice it apart to make it what society wants it to be? How can we personally neglect it? John Piper puts it like this. He says, without the Bible, we are all wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, because we cannot see the most obvious and the most necessary thing in the world. We cannot see the glory of God, the very thing for which we were made. But in his word, God opens blind eyes. God reveals himself. He shows his glory through the ordinary words of the page. If you want to see God, know your Bible. I like his plain speaking. So that's the answer to the so what question in Jeremiah 36. What does it mean for us? It means that Jeremiah's message of judgment and of hope is a train hurtling not just towards Judah but also toward us. It's a train of judgment and of hope traveling on the rails of God's promises fulfilled and of God's word preserved. And facing this train, with nowhere to go, we have two choices. Get aboard or suffer the eternal consequences. Jeremiah shows us that God keeps his promise of judgment and of hope in the 600s BC, which tells us that he will keep it in future. We have a promise of judgment to come, but we also have a certain hope of salvation in Christ, and it's a promise to which we must respond. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're a God of mercy and of grace. Thank you that even though we can't do anything ourselves to avoid judgment and to secure hope, you have done it for us. And we pray, Lord, with David the psalmist when he says, our heart is glad in you because we trust in your holy name, in your holy word. And we ask, Lord, that your steadfast love will be upon us even as we hope in you. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.